Great, so it's wonderful to be here with everyone this afternoon and to be able to welcome Usha Natarajan here to Queen's Law. And uh, we're particularly lucky because Usha is someone who is conscientious of her carbon footprint and currently lives in Jordan. And so she's just made her way to this part of the world where she'll be heading to New York next, um, where she is the uh, a fellow at Columbia University, the Edward W. Sedge Fellow. Um, and Usha is an interdisciplinary researcher and writer, and she utilizes third world approaches to international law. So this is known as TWAIL. International law is a new work world for me. Um, but I enjoyed learning a bit about it uh, over lunch that we just had. So she uses this to provide an interrelated understanding of development, environment, migration, and conflict. We're fortunate because Usha is a leader in this TWAIL movement and a founding editor of the TWAIL Review. She has over 40 publications and her research is recognized by leading disciplinary awards, fellowships, as well as global research grants. And prior to academia, she worked uh, in practice for the United Nations. And I'm so uh, grateful to have a copy of this wonderful recent publication as well, Locating Nature, Making and Unmaking International Law, which will be the subject of today's talk. And um, where we are gathered here in Kingston, uh, as we think about the environment, this question, where is the environment? This site itself is also a place of international uh, environmental law. As we're gathered here on Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territories, one of the fundamental agreements that was made uh, many hundreds of years ago between these two nations was reflected in the dish with one spoon wampum. And this wampum agreement uh, has an image of a dish in the middle, and it's to recognize that we all share this land and that we need to have agreements and understandings of our obligations to ensure that we can all live here in a sustainable way through the generations. And the spoon portion of this wampum treaty was to remind us that when we take from this shared dish, we should do so in a way that is not pointy like a fork or a sharp like a knife, uh, but that we have rounded edges as we consider the ways that how we take from the land affects everyone, both human and more than human. So uh, with that, we invite you, Usha, to come and uh, take the stage for us. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Professor Boris, Professor Whitesford, Professor Kinsey's, uh, for this kind invitation. And thank you to Natalie uh, Moniz Hem for the really thoughtful organization and getting me here. Uh, it is such a pleasure to be here at Queen's University in Kingston. It's my first time here, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to visit the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee. I'll start with a bit of background about um, where I'm coming from, both literally and metaphorically speaking. Um, so I was born in India, as some of you might be able to tell from looking at me. 
It's not always obvious. So I was born in India and I've lived all over the place and I'm currently living in Jordan. Um, and as a non-Indigenous person, I'm committed to working against colonialism. So that's uh, the central part of the Third World Approaches to International Law Trail Movement, which is basically this global network of international law scholars and practitioners um, who are dedicated to dismantling colonialism and imperialism in international law and to transforming our discipline into a tool for global justice. Um, so the discipline of international law was created in Europe by Europeans um, to enable European empire. That's when the discipline started. Um, so European empire in, a, in all its forms. So overturning this sort of it's like an original sin, so to speak, in the origins of the discipline. It's a really big task, but nevertheless, that's what we're determined to do because um, we believe that change is necessary and also that, it, that it's actually possible. So I've spent most of my life living and working across the global south, mostly in Asia, where I'm from, but also in Africa and in Latin America. Um, and my experience in the global north is more limited, but it comes from being a citizen of Australia. Um, so my family moved to Melbourne just before I started high school. And I also went to law school there. And that, I think, looking back, was the beginning of my um, journey towards learning that there are post-colonialists like me who are concerned about the system legacies of colonialism as imperialism in the world today, but that there were still lots of people who were still living under really harsh colonial regimes in the world. Um, and that if we want to decolonize international law, the liberation of people who are still colonized has to be our priority. And sadly for Indigenous Australians, um, things like genocide and apartheid and racial discrimination, they're not historical, they're not things of the past. They're still dealing with them today. So the Third World Approaches movement has learned a lot from the generosity of tribal and Indigenous people all over the world um, who have shared their wisdom with us on how the post-colonial world can work in solidarity with those who are still colonized so that everyone can fully realize self-determination for all peoples. Um, and so there have been Canadian professors like Professor Sujit Xavier, who's going to come in later on, um, you know, who's, who's been a real leader in bringing about this dialogue between third and fourth world approaches. Um, so between uh, post-colonialists and, in, and Indigenous law scholars. Um, and so Professor Xavier, Professor Amar Bhatia, um, Professor Beverly Jacobs, Professor Lauren Babus, and Professor Jeffrey Hewitt um, have sort of, it's been thanks to their collective endeavours that we've forged these links between uh, Twail and Fourth World um, uh, scholars. And I've had the privilege to learn from First Nations um, legal traditions because of them. So if you want to learn more about this dialogue, please see this, this is wonderful edited volume called Decolonizing Law, Indigenous Third World and Settler Perspectives, which is this sort of conversation of saying, how can we, we help each other uh, more effectively in the future? So that's a little bit about why it's so meaningful for me to come to these territories, um, because I've learned a lot here. <laughs> yeah. um, so as you will see, this thread between Third World and Fourth World is, is going to come up as I, as I get into my topic today, which is, where is the environment? Um, so what do lawyers, specifically international lawyers, mean uh, when we say this word? Um, so I'm going to focus on international law because uh, that's what I know the most about. Um, 
But actually, ultimately, the arguments I'm making today can be applied to the discipline of law more generally, um, and also across the social sciences and humanities more broadly. So what I'm talking about today stems from a, a larger research project um, called Locating Nature, Making and Unmaking International Law. Um, one of the outputs is what Lindsay held up earlier. So before I explain the substance of this project, I'm going to provide some institutional background. So the project began in 2013 um, at Harvard Law, at the Institute for Global Law and Policy, because um, they provided the first two grants to start it up, the collaborative research grants. And that um, allowed me to bring together an initial group of critical thinkers about um, law and the environment. And so we could workshop our ideas together, um, and more importantly, we could talk to experts from other disciplines because we wanted to do something new. And there were people in other disciplines who were further ahead than international lawyers were. So we talked to environmental historians, people in science and technology studies, uh, development economists, divinity scholars, literature scholars, and so on and so forth. Um, and that led to this initial symposium in the Library Journal in 2014. And then after that, we have these regular workshops meetings, conference panels, and so on. And that, that helped the group to grow, to include scholars from all over the world, because that was a really important part of the project. And the key figure in this has been um, Professor Helen Mayman at Sherbrooke University, who hosted several events under the, um, sorry, <laughs> um, under the auspices of the Laboratoire pour la Recherche Critique en Droit, including the Kulok Terra Terra in, in 2016. And um, crucially, a few years into this project, I was really fortunate to meet Professor Julia Dim, and she and I have worked together on this project for many years now, and um, including to put together the edited collection um, that, that um, Lindsay very kindly held up earlier. Uh, so Julia's expertise in climate change and natural resource governance and then in human rights has been indispensable to how this project has taken shape. And more importantly, as, as anyone who's worked on putting together any kind of project knows, um, it's, it's, it's really a blessing to find a like-minded and committed collaborator and, and friend to work with rather than doing it on your own. <laughs> so, um, so we published an intro to the project in the Twelve Review in 2019, and then the edited collection came out in October last year with um, Cambridge University Press. Uh, so the presentation I'm making today draws on this introduction that Julia and I wrote. And she wanted to be here with me today so we could do this together, but unfortunately she couldn't make it, so I'm doing my best to, <laughs> to represent the project on behalf of Julia, as well as all the other participants in the project who I'll say more about a bit later on. So as you can already tell, this is a collective endeavour. Um, and that's an important part of what we're trying to do. And, and it's also very much an ongoing endeavor. So if you're listening and um, you're interested, please do reach out to any of the people involved in this project because we're, we're still going. Um, and I suspect the reason why interest in the project has continued to grow is because the types of environmental problems we face today and the types of challenges that lawyers face when we come up, when we're trying to come up with effective solutions to these problems, they're not going anywhere, and that's why um, you know, people are, are still um, you know, traveling down this path. So what is this path? What is the Locating Nature Project about? The best way to explain it um, 
is to start with, well, what are the environmental problems that we're trying to deal with? Um, well, some of them include, of course, climate change, um, which we hear the most about, but also mass extinction of species, increasing deforestation, desert spreading, and the increasing pollution of the air, of the water, of the land, um, increasing pollution and also toxicity. So oh, I, I should shout out to the beautiful sublime photographer, um, Sebastian Salgado, whose, whose imagery is accompanying my presentation today. So specifically when it comes to climate change, the last time there was this much carbon dioxide in our atmosphere was three and a half million years ago. And the last time species were going extinct at this rate was 66 million years ago. And the last time our nitrogen cycle was disrupted to this extent was two and a half billion years ago. And, and nitrogen, as you know, makes up most of our atmosphere. So what does all this mean? Well, obviously it means that environmental change today is unprecedented in the history of our species. Um, so this sort of relatively 11,700 years stable period of the Holocene, uh, the only state of the earth that we know for certain can support contemporary human society, um, is it's coming to an end. And there's increasing evidence that it's human activity that's, that's affecting the earth's function to a degree that threatens its ability to stay in this Holocene-like state. So in 2009, the Stockholm Resilience Center led a group of international, uh, internationally renowned and international scientists um, to identify the nine processes that regulate the stability and the resilience of the Earth system. And scientists proposed these quantitative planetary boundaries within which humanity can continue to um, develop and thrive for generations to come. And if we cross these boundaries, then it increases the risk of generating large scale um, quite sudden and irreversible um, change. So the most recent update stated that society's activities have pushed climate change, those are the red ones, climate change, biodiversity loss, and shifts in our nutrient cycles, and it's mainly for nitrogen and phosphorus, and as well as land use beyond the boundaries into unprecedented territory. And then there are certain, there are five other issues um, that some of them remain within the boundaries now, but then you can also see the question marks because there are some that we can't say for certain because we don't yet know how to, how to measure them. So this is, these are the issues that law is trying to address. Um, so be unprecedented for, for people, let alone for lawyers. Um, so in the time I have with you today, I'm gonna to focus on the, the simple question, uh, where in, where exactly is this environment thing I'm speaking of? Because the word is used more and more nowadays compared to say 10 or 15 years ago. Um, in every discipline, people are saying environment much more frequently than they used to. When lawyers say this, do we see ourselves as being in the environment when we're talking about it? Um, if not, where do we think that we are when we talk about it? Um, and how do we purport to govern it? Where do we see ourselves in relation to environment? And how do we purport, purport to, to govern this place? Um, so the question of where we think we are, it's a simple question, but answering it can unmake the foundations of law 
because in Western law, there are some fundamental assumptions about how the legal system can work. And one of them is that there's a difference between the subject of governance, those who makes the laws, and the object of governance, what the laws govern. Um, and between the social world and the natural world, um, and between the human world and the non-human world. So these are three things that are very fundamental to Western law, not just international law. Um, but when you have to answer the question of where the environment is, that foundation falls apart. Um, all right, so why do we want to bother <laughs> returning to these fundamentals and asking these basic questions? Well, we need to because so far we haven't found solutions to <laughs> these environmental problems. Um, so we've had 50 years of international environmental law treaties, legal principles, institutions, research, teaching, textbooks, handbooks, all of that. So we've got this specialised expertise in international environmental law, but every single one of these problems has not just gotten fixed, it's gotten worse. So they're steadily deteriorating in the time that we've done this. So if we look at the two best known examples of climate change and biodiversity loss, half of all the greenhouse gases in the air now um, were emitted in the last 30 years. And so that's since we wrote the UN framework on climate change. Um, and then one million species are now in risk of extinction. That's since we wrote the biodiversity convention. So these two crises have been the focus of international law attention. And you know, as I said, it's not that they haven't improved, it's that they've gotten a lot worse. So what's going on? What do we say when people ask us? doing a really bad job <laughs> what's going on what's the problem well often the two main critiques that are offered up are that rich people and poor people can't agree on how to fix the environment so that's called the north south divide usually um and that there's a lack of political will that there's so many other problems so this is a problem but then people are focusing on other things they just prioritize other things over this and um, both those reasons are accurate to a degree. I think that the most important part of those critiques that I think is worth keeping in mind is that there's this connection between economic inequality um, and environmental health. <laughs> you know, that, that's really important to remember. But unfortunately, those two critiques don't really provide any answers. They don't tell us, well, what's the path towards a more equal world? What's the path towards prioritising the environment? Um, you know, and, and you know, what, what's the role of lawyers in all of this? Um, you know, is it, is it not our fault because politicians are to blame, uh, you know, and, and economists are to blame, and they have to deal with political priorities, they have to deal with inequality. Um, they're the, you know, it's them, the politicians and corporations stop us from making good laws, um, or we make good laws and they just don't obey them, um, you know, and but I think that as a lawyer, we have to take responsibility for this because five decades of international environmental law, I think we have to face up to the fact that we might be creating the problems that we're planning to solve. And so that's why I think we need to return to fundamental questions like where is the environment? Um, you know, and, and just try and figure out how it is that we understand the environment as international environmental lawyers to try and understand how it is that we're, we are actually very much part of this problem. Um, okay, so how do international lawyers understand the environment? They have a very particular understanding of the environment. So 
which stems from Western environmentalism. So the sort of stereotypical hippie time in the 1960s and 70s and in Western Europe and North America was when the middle classes in those places started feeling the everyday consequences of industry, of industrialization. The water was dirty, air was polluted, there's toxins in the food and in the land. And it was also the heyday of the Cold War, so they were worried about nuclear pollution as well. Um, and at this time, we have the first pictures of the Earth in space. And these pictures became symbolic of this, this newfound knowledge. Um, and this, they were used by environmental movements at the time as a sort of symbol of environmentalism. So this is the beautiful earth rise. I mean, I've made this presentation quite a few times and I still don't get tired of looking at it because it's so amazing, it's so beautiful. Um, uh, so it's this famous photo taken by the astronaut Bill Anders on Christmas Eve in 1968 um, as part of the Apollo 8 mission and it shows the earth rising above the lunar surface. Um, and it was the first time that people could see for themselves um, you know, how small and unique and, and fragile and beautiful and, and unified the planet was and that they, you know, they could see what their home looked like and that there were no borders there. And so in the United States, these were the decades that saw the, the 1963 Clean Water Act, the 1972 Clean Air Act, and then in, in the 19th, in, in 1970, the establishment of the, of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And it was from that that we had the international law engagement with environmentalism. So in 1972, there was a Stockholm Conference for the Human Environment. And this is usually identified as the start the genesis of international environmental law. So if you're looking at an environmental textbook, that'll be, you know, where international environmental law started. And then after Stockholm came several other summits, the most important one was the 1992 Earth Summit, and then treaties, including the Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Biodiversity Convention, and legal principles like that of common but differentiated responsibilities, the caution principle and so on. And so this is how the specialization evolved and it constituted itself. So in this origin story, the environment appears within international law in the 1970s as the object of our, of our stewardship. So this is when international lawyers first assume that such protection uh, is both desirable and, and, and possible. So if, if the standard disciplinary textbook will tell you that humanity's understanding of nature changed at this time in the 1960s. Before that, people were told to control nature, conquer nature, use your science, use your industry and modernity to, to conquer nature and control it. But with the advent of Western environmentalism, it turned to, uh, humanity was asked to turn away from mastering nature towards protecting and cherishing nature. So that's the story of how the environment became the object of international regulation. Um, so, this is conventionally narrated as a global paradigm shift. Um, but of course, this type of environmentalism is, as I've described, this is a product of a specific culture. This is a product of Western culture and Western history. Um, and as a result, this international law conceptualization of the environment is not necessarily self-evident to or shared by most people in the world. Um, so for the rest of us, through 
being at the receiving end of centuries of colonialism and genocide and slavery and apartheid and racial discrimination, the global north has systemically looted the natural resources of the global south to fuel wealth accumulation in the north. So northern understandings of economic development were eventually universalized through uh, the decolonization process. So to become independent, southern independence was conditioned on a commitment to industry and <laughs> to industrial development. Um, so post-colonial states could vary politically. They could be capitalist, they could be communist, they could be non-aligned, they could be anywhere in between. Um, but if they disallowed industry, um, they were denied sovereignty. So this is evidenced most clearly by the ongoing struggle of many tribal and indigenous peoples for self-determination. So this is an illustration of the North American bison of which there were 60 million end of the 18th century and then less than a century later um, in 1889 there were only 541 bison left so from 60 million to 541 in less than 100 years um, and this is just a illustrate this is just a collectible card of Buffalo Hill that I found on a website that sells them I just included it to illustrate that this journey has cultural significance. <laughs> it has a cultural imprint um, today in the, in, the, in the Western world as to what was conquered in that time. So against this kind of history, when international environmental law was proposed, it was greeted by ambivalence in most of the world. Um, you know, uh, the Northern desire to globally regulate the harmful consequences of industry was coming too close upon the heels of southern states finally becoming, um, you know, having some degree of economic independence. So they were worried that this was going to be a way, this was going to be environmental colonialism, <laughs> a way to intervene into, into the global south. Um, so southern responses were, well, of course, we need to deal with environmental problems, but we can also articulate different visions of economic development. So, um, as I was saying before, there's a connection between inequality and environmental destruction. So why don't we have a more just um, new international economic order? Um, and then there were proposals for more self-reliance, that uh, a type of development that accounts for both the inner limits of what people need and the outer limits of, of planetary boundaries. And so all these attempts to propose um, solutions from the South ultimately were unsuccessful. So Southern states had to deal with the emergence of international environmental law. So they did that by insisting on legal recognition that the rich have caused this problem. And so they should do most of the work to protect the environment. So it might be an international law, but people who caused it need to take responsibility for it. And also because they've enriched themselves by um, destroying the environment, they're also, they have more capacity to do something about it because um, they have the um, wealth to, um, to respond to this problem. So this is not just a historic fact, it's very much a, a current fact. We live in a world now where the richest 20% of people consume 80% of all natural resources and produce 90% of waste. Uh, so if we look at, so that, that's for all consumption and waste, but if we just look at climate, 
We have um, the UK, the 66 million people in the United Kingdom, and eating as much as the combined population of Nigeria, Pakistan, Morocco, and Peru, only 75 million people. We have one state in the United States, the 39 million people in California, that have more than that, 880 million people in the 50 poorest countries in the world. And we have two states in the US, 37 million people in Texas and New Jersey, who emit as much carbon dioxide as the 1 billion people in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so, most people do not create environmental problems. Um, it's the richest 20%. So, legal principles like sustainable development and carbon, um, common but differentiated responsibilities were intended to reflect this, this reality, to respond to it and, and articulate precisely you know, these requirements that those who cause the harm should provide to remedy. Um, so if these problems are caused almost entirely by rich people, um, in a way it's a good thing because changing the actions of this small proportion of people would fix the problem. Um, but unfortunately, international environmental law has been unsuccessful in, in turning these legal principles or these uh, treaties even in, into action because um, rich people won't change their behaviour and law has not been able to get them to do that. Um, to make things even worse, um, although the poor contribute little to nothing to climate change, they are on the front lines of environmental harm because of their geographical locations, which are particularly vulnerable, and that includes North Africa and the Levant, where, where I live and work, um, where the impact of climate change are greater than the global average by far. Um, the lack of resources and regulatory capacity to protect themselves. The ongoing extraction of their natural resources and labor to fuel an unequal global economy, as well as the systemic transfer of pollution from the rich to the poor. So this situation is what's usually called the North-South divide when it comes to the environment. But what I want to talk about today is deeper than this, there's a mischaracterization of where the environment is actually located in international law. So although international environmental law says this is about protection, this is about stewardship, um, the environment is much more than the object of our protection. It's the foundation of, of all life, including human life and all endeavor, <laughs> including human endeavor. And um, you know, and a small part of that is that it's also the basis for all our economic activity. So international law characterizes this aspect, this economic aspect of the environment, as natural resources. Um, and they are not the object of protection, but of free commons. Uh, so the environment is regulated with the aim of stewardship and protection, but natural resources are governed with the aim of enabling the most efficient exploitation of them. So while they are the same object, but we have these competing governance objectives directed at the same object. So of course we have regulatory dysfunction, it's no surprise that these laws don't work. And when the two legal regimes collide, economic law inevitably prevails because economic law has a much deeper disciplinary history. The origins of international law were um, in doctrines that were put forward to allow the first corporations, the private actors, from the global north to 
to exploit resources in the global south. So the first international voice, so the arguments of Victoria um, for commerce in the Americas, for free commerce in the Americas, and, um, Hubert Rochus's defense of the liberties of the Dutch East India Company in its pursuit of colonial labor and resources. So the drive to develop economically has been the propelling force of international law ever since, and still is. Um, so international law has long functioned to protect the private economic interests, the private sphere in general, um, in ways that promote accumulation and that thereby end up benefiting the rich. And, and that's in the global south and in the global north, and it furthers globalized capitalism. And today, the powers of <laughs> uh, private law, we can see that in international environmental law itself, because um, we just turn to um, economic incentives, you know, for environmental solutions, um, the green economy, the green consumerism, green growth. Um, you know, so it's the faith that capitalism can somehow solve problems while it's creating them. And this contradiction is, is most obvious when it comes to um, calls for using natural resources more efficiently um, as a substitute for or a distraction from directly tackling the problem of overconsumption. Uh, so these approaches ultimately end up exacerbating the environmental crisis. So, you know, drink this type of coffee, buy this type of shoes, and you'll feel better. Well, it doesn't help because what ends up happening is that you consume even more and um, there are more resources available for unlimited use, although you might be using it more efficiently, but you end up using more in the long run. Um, so many of these so-called green solutions from um, biofuels to electric vehicles, carbon offsets to carbon trading, they're really creative ways to fuel economic growth, but they do not actually protect the environment. Because whether we like it or not, the economy and ecology, they're one and the same, they're, they're inextricable. And so the, you can't really break the links between consumption and waste. They're, they're, they're intertwined. And uh, uh, same with natural resources and the environment, they're one and the same thing. So if international lawyers are able to compartmentalize them, then we produce this really convenient regulatory schizophrenia that allows environmentalism itself to be captured by the endless pursuit of economic growth. So beyond regulatory dis dis dysfunction and it just not working, that none of these problems are, um, are being addressed, uh, there's a bigger problem, which is that by conceptualizing the environment as the object of international legal regulation, there are these more fundamental issues of the scientific inaccuracy as well as um, the disciplinary hubris of what we're trying to do. Um, the foundational role of nature in international economic law and then of course in international environmental law is, is an illustration of a broader point, which is that the natural environment underlies every area of international law, every area of law, every area of life, because it provides the basis for life. And, International lawyers cannot actually physically separate ourselves from the environment. 
but we try to occupy this conceptual position from the outside of it because we want to observe it through government. So conceptually, we're not in it at the time when we do that anyway. So why do we do this? Um, so this type of stance, this type of standpoint can only be understood by tracing its cultural evolution within, within Western modern thought. So Lassos Arbiru um, says in the logic of environmentalism that Western modernity from the Enlightenment onwards um, has a tendency towards metaphysical totalizations. So what he means by that is that there is this need to make a decision about what exists in any given field in its entirety. So the Western modern subject is compelled to venture beyond the world because it is only from such an external position that the boundaries of the world can be drawn and knowledge of what exists there guaranteed. So like other modern disciplines, international law is continuously doing this, conceptually speaking. So Peter Fitzpatrick and Anthony Mangi, amongst many others, have observed how international law is justified and dynamized by continually asserting, well, here is a universal value. Uh, well, how do you know? Well, because you have given yourself a position of external objectivity to identify the universal value from. And then this is followed by those people and places who may remain unaware of these values, despite their ostensible universality. And then we need to create international laws to enlighten them, whether they like it or not. So in the context of a discipline that's always making these films, um, to carve up more space for itself as international law, um, then the international environmental law can be better understood. It actually makes perfect sense <laughs> because it's the necessary culmination of this way. It's the necessary combination of the Western legal enterprise because now you can do the ultimate model of passing international law around everything, um, the environment. <laughs> um, so that's why this is actually an excellent symbol for Western environmentalism uh, because, you know, as it arose in the US and Western Europe in the 1960s, there was this assumption of a conceptual posture external to Earth, allowing it sufficient you know, distance to look back and see, well, here's a single globe around which law can be passed. And our guru observes that this position of externality is to say, in effect, that it is we who surround the environment, not the other way around. And this, a law's ability to physically and conceptually isolate itself from the natural world has not produced regulatory solutions here. It has created environmental catastrophe. Um, and you know, law is a really important part of taking a unified planet and turning it into discrete sovereign territories and taking nature and turning it into exchangeable property and in taking interconnected ecosystems and seeing in them only these two realms of infinite commodification and exchange. And in extracting and conceptually separating the atomized human individual from the intertwined mesh that actually keeps us alive. So law doesn't just enable environmental destruction, but it understands nature in a way that makes sure that remedy is impossible. Um, so the only way to remedy this conceptual dislocation 
nature is to exit the confines of Western modernity. And it's supposed to be an international law. So if we want an international solution to environmental problems, then we have to be open to diverse philosophical and theoretical understandings of the relationship between nature and law. Can we be willing to embrace understandings of nature that understand more accurately than we do the parameters of human ability to govern nature? And if we can, then that gives us a pathway towards more sustainable ways of life. Um, because we're talking about unprecedented, the environmental change on an unprecedented scale for humans. So this is a very serious and fundamental challenge to knowledge production in the natural sciences and especially in the social sciences, because many disciplines in the social sciences assume that natural systems will be stable. That's like an unstated assumption in many social sciences. Um, and these sort of understandings about nature need to be identified, unpacked, and radically reworked if we're going to think our way out of uh, destructive development patterns and ecological crisis. So that's a really long way of describing what the project is about. So that's the premise of the, of the Locating Nature project. And um, as I said, it, it began in 2013. 2014, and it brings together international lawyers from five continents to unpack together the central constructs of international law and to remake them in a more sustainable way. So the first part of this book is just Julia, Ellen, uh, Kishen, Ode, and I. We explain why it's important to understand more accurately the role of nature in international law. The second part is the unmaking part. So what role have international law concepts playing in destroying their natural environment. So we have chapters devoted to you know, exploring specific concepts. So um, sovereignty, um, jurisdiction, uh, commerce, territory, human rights, and labor are the concepts that each of these chapters look at. Um, so that's Hiliana Porras, Tyler McCreary, Vanessa Lamb, Karen McChristen, Kate Stoll, Adrian Smith, Dana Scott, and I. So, we each look at these um, concepts and then uncover what role they've played in destroying the natural environment. And we think about whether they can be remade in a more sustainable way. And then the third part is um, about how we can reconfigure um, concepts to promote sustainable living. And for this, authors have essentially turned to local, domestic, and transnational development. So, um, you were saying earlier that Twill is about international law from below. So it is very much looking at places you wouldn't normally look. So what are those places that are usually silenced and ignored in international law? Um, can we get wisdom and inspiration from indigenous and tribal law, from peasant movements, from feminist movements, from Marxist movements, from traditions of narrative and myth-making across the global South and North? So these are the places that um, these authors have looked as a way to uh, remaking the discipline. So it's Tomas Lucarando, Jamina Petrova, uh, Keshe Kode, Roger Marino, Kathleen Burrell, and the legendary indigenous scholar from Australia, Irene Watson. We were very fortunate to have her become part of the morning as well. So 
We're hoping this is a first step to what will be a broader undertaking to um, remake international law because there's obviously a lot more to do than this. So, um, and so we're sort of amid discussions about that now, about what we can do next. We have some plans about that. So, as I said earlier, if if you or anyone you know is interested in participating in, in the next steps, you'd be very welcome and please reach out to me or any of the others doing that so we don't think this is an academic exercise it's very much happening in the world um, and we have these alternative understandings between nature and law that are challenging and stretching and transforming legal systems everywhere um, so we have peasant movements in ecuador that demand the right to preserve their way of life we have um, class actions on behalf of future generations in the philippines we have transnational tribal mobilizations against um, extractive industries in south asia law reform recognizing the rights of mother earth in um, bolivia and then uh, recognizing the legal personality of non-human entities in india and colombia and new zealand and the rights of indigenous and tribal peoples to hunt protected species in the arctic um, the climate justice demands of sinking small island states um, massive environmental protests across china and green tribunals coming up there uh, international rights for nature tribunals. I just lost my spot. Um, and uh, these Mother Earth summits. So they're held alongside the formal environmental law summits as an alternative to them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's very much happening. It's not just an academic exercise. It's, a unity between um, scholars and practitioners who think that this um, is a realistic endeavor, more realistic than anything that's happening in the informal legal discussions, actually. Um, and then when you do this, of course, you are targeting a very entrenched type of violence <laughs> that's structured globally for 500 years that's reproduced in equality and ecological destruction for centuries. So, it's a really high stakes endeavor, and that's why so many people are getting, uh, you know, environmental defenders are being assassinated, uh, disappearing, um, are being murdered, worldwide, the numbers are increasing in the thousands every year. Despite that, the movement still keeps growing because there's no choice. I mean, the environmental change is, is inescapable. People who are on the front lines don't really have anything to lose. Um, so, environmental change very much confronts international lawyers with a systemic injustice that we have helped to create and maintain. Um, issues like climate change and other environmental issues, they're not emergencies. They've been a very long time in the making. So you can't really react to them with a legal specialization or an extreme measure or an extra budgetary um, demand because this is an inevitable consequence of legal systems that protect the rich and powerful from the consequences of their actions. Uh, international law has helped to structure this system of environmental apartheid where there's a privileged few who can treat everything and everyone else as, as superfluous. Uh, so it's not just a sense of justice that demands that we should take responsibility for the suffering we inflict on the world through our lifestyles. But also that environmental change on this scale reminds us that it's neither desirable 
not possible to indefinitely separate ourselves, either conceptually or physically, from the environment, um, despite efforts of very, very rich people to colonize new planets. <laughs> you know, that's um, not necessarily, we're not necessarily going to be outrun, be able to outrun this no matter how rich we are. So environmental change on this scale demands an acceptance that we were wrong in thinking that we could construct the environment and then govern it. Um, it, it necessitates that we transcend the confines of Western modernity and embrace these other narratives about our relationship with the natural world that more accurately estimate human ability to govern it. So that there's this link between um, inequality and environmental destruction because um, it's, it's a closing off to other ideas is, is you know, very much central to having problems that we have been caused. Um, so it, it does require a lot to think beyond our traditional remedies, protection and remedy, causation and responsibility, loss and damage, liability and insurance, all the things that we're used to thinking in terms of. Well, this requires us making space for something different, something that might make us uncomfortable, something that might be very unknown to Western law, something that might actually be um, unknowable. So by relinquishing a can, our conviction that Western <laughs> philosophy is as good as it gets, the epitome of human thought, and more importantly, that humans are as good as it gets, that we're the epitome of the natural world, um, we, we kind of do have to get past that and to um, break the illusion of separateness um, and no, notice that actually it's nature that, that's governing us. So I will stop there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, that was such an interesting, uh, kind of profound uh, hour uh, for me. Um, maybe I'm going to take the queue of questions. Is that okay with you? Anybody want to start us off? Don't be shy. Doesn't have to be a question. <laughs> you know, yeah, okay. Lindsay. Okay, yeah, thank you so much, Yusha. I really, really enjoyed listening to you and this depth of thought that you've put to these topics and themes over the last however many years. And a question I have for you is what role do you think kind of anthropocentric metaphors play in this work? So for example, Dr. Suzanne Samard, the scientist at the University of British Columbia, she kind of coined this term of the mother tree and this uh, science around how different trees in the forest cooperate with each other. And then she had just millions and millions of dollars thrown at her research because suddenly she was communicating in a way that people felt like they could pick it up and it matter to them. They know what a mother is and they understand the forest now as a network, as a family. But then other scientists have kind of been speaking against her and kind of her line of work saying, well, that's not 100% accurate to the science to kind of describe these trees as a mother. There's a lot of distinctions that we need to make here. And we see in a number of indigenous legal traditions, the way that uh, rocks and air and water are considered animate and they're given these kind of personhood type features. Um, so, but I'm curious if you feel that there's a, a risk or a danger of kind of 
humanizing or personifying the environment as we engage in this task? So that's a fantastic question. I think that the answer is, for me is like yes and no. So I wrote the chapter in there on human rights and a big part of what I was talking about is what we do need to get into anthropocentrism because that is probably one of the reasons why the notion of human rights is not very helpful for tackling environmental problems because it's, it's tackling the particular vision of the human. But then I think it's yes and no because I don't think there's anything wrong with the notion of the human and um, understanding things in a way that's understandable for us. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just that I think that we need to be able to hold both those things in our heads, that, it, that, that, that we are, um, that, it's, that it's not real, that we are making these things so that we can relate, we tell these stories so that we behave in a certain way. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's literally mother tree and all the other parts of the nature may also be our mother in different ways you know um so i think that if we can do that then there's nothing wrong with an idea of <laughs> you know um if we see ourselves as interconnected um so i would say yes and no i think anthropocentrism the way it works in international law is hugely problematic um anthropocentrism in the way that that school that has done it, I, I don't know enough about it to say, but it may not be. <laughs> um, so it just depends. <laughs> um, because there's a limit to how much we would ever be able to transcend. So it's more a question of how we use that um, to learn <laughs> rather than um, assuming that we'll one day be able to only see ourselves as part of the environment. I don't think that that's ever necessarily going to be possible. We're always going to see ourselves as distinct in some way. So, uh, we have uh, Peter trying to ask the question, but um, I have to tell her to put it through the chat. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Thank you so very much for a wonderful, very rich presentation. Uh, I've learned a great deal. And I'm very grateful for your presence. In the presentation, you make it clear you deconstruct the role of one particular way epistemic of looking at the environment, being the Western enlightened imperial colonial sort of, if you like, worldview. I was sort of hoping that at some stage you might be able to hear more about what might either take its place or be more appropriate. I'm guessing that other cultures, human cultures, understandings of the environment, perhaps indigenous understandings, can help us transcend the bounds that you very clearly ably set out for us that the Western epistemic imposes. What can you tell us about your research in that regard? Where can we look to better understandings for our place in the environment as part of the environment, et cetera? Well, it's, I mean, we can look everywhere. I mean, the sad thing is that all these traditions that, um, you know, it, it's been a, a cultural genocide, you know, <laughs> economic globalization has just decimated so many alternatives, but they're, you know, they, they're very much still exist everywhere. Um, in, you know, in Palestine, in, um, in China, in India, everywhere, um, and in the indigenous legal tradition. So if we want an international rule, um, 
there's no shortage of places to look. I don't think it's going to be a direct transplant because um, the needs of today on a global scale are different to the needs of a specific locality. But obviously there are things that we can draw on there that are going to be more accurate in terms of understanding these problems than what we've done so far. Um, so I think that there's no lack of places to look. It's not that there are only good things in the South. There are lots of terrible traditions in the South as well. Um, it's just, and, and there have been better environmentalisms in the global North, actually, that were overtaken by this one, <laughs> you know. Um, so there are lots of traditions we can draw on to create something new. I mean, if we really want an international law. And um, I, you know, do that on specific issues. For instance, in the human rights chapter, I just look towards my own traditions of how to understand um, uh, an alternative to human rights in, in the way that people can relate to each other in the world. And um, I look at things like the net of Indra in Buddhism and Hinduism, that like, it's this net of gems that um, where everyone is in the center, but everyone is connected to everyone else who's also in the center. Um, so each gem reflects all the other gems around it. So you're sitting in one and you reflect everything around you. And so I don't know, there are lots of different the intellectual traditions that have been around for centuries that are extremely sophisticated that, you know, systems theorists turn to, to understand how systems work, you know. Um, so yeah, I think we can, we, we can, I just turn to that because I'm familiar with that because I'm in the room, but I think every person in the room can do that, you know, from the global north and south, um, excavate things that are more useful than um, enlightenment thinking has been to address these problems. Can I ask one? Um, do you have a theory? You're the boss. You're the boss. <laughs> do you have a theory about how change occurs? The, 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 as I listened to the presentation, I wondered to myself, the way you describe things, things sound intractable. So it sounds like this is a system that's locked in place. It was set up 500 years ago by bad actors, which is funny because it's it, not funny. It's just a, it, it diverges from the rest of your explanation in a way because the rest of it's systemic. And then you're talking about these bad actors from Europe that set up a system in place it's locked us into this dynamic where 20% of the population is making things much worse. So how is change supposed to occur within this description? Well, I mean, it occurs through strategy and tactics. I mean, it's happened, right? I mean, it's definitely not a static system. 500 years ago, that system changed a lot by the time we got to the 1800s even, right? So the colonialism of Brocious and Victoria is very different from uh, much more direct colonialism. <laughs> <That's pretty laughs> yeah. uh, 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 Three hundred years later, and and you know, Enlightenment thinking was very different from Renaissance thinking in, in, in Europe. So there were changes. It wasn't a static system, and then there was always pushback. Right? There, there are principles in international law like the Alphabet. Archetype, the principle of self determination, all these things were achieved through um, solidarity and struggle amongst people of the world south. So it's not that change doesn't happen. Um, it very much happens, but uh, the only way to make it happen is to 
um, collaborate, which is why I found it important to talk about, well, these are the people, this is the way we did it. This is just a very small project, but actually there's a long history of much bigger projects in the global south that do this. Um, and um, so Sujit, who's, who's here now, you know, a big part of this is speaking to the fourth world because there are things we learn from each other about, um, well, the pitfalls of post-colonialism <laughs> when you get independence. And so pathways to independence that would be better than the ones that we took, <laughs> for instance. Um, you know, and you see that in works of people like um, Coulthard and, you know, what are the pitfalls of what path you take towards sovereignty. Um, and so, you know, I think that we have that and that's what trail is about. You know, we believe change is possible, but we have seen how it hasn't worked and has worked before. And so we talk and we work together and we use, you know, our networks, our friendships, our what we learn through conversations like this one. Um, and of course it'll happen. I mean, we, we are at this point. So it will change, it's changed all. It's not a static system. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? I also want to say I really enjoyed this talk. It's very deep, so I feel a little bit like my pride is blowing. <laughs> so I don't know if this question will make sense or not. But I'm wondering is there, do we need to have a way to connect to kind of broader society in the West as part of this sort of transformation movement? I have a little bit of a sense that it's sort of in the international legal community, and this is kind of a lot where the action is, or even sort of learning and engaging from other communities. But I just want to, like, how much do we need a feedback effect that goes into the 20% in order to actually be able to achieve the real sort of substantive change? Yeah. yeah. So I think if you could, that's just a question that I have. There's, there's two different things going on in the 20%. One is people who are basically dropping out of the 20% that go off the grid, right? Because they feel like there's no way I can ethically participate in this life anymore. So they, but that number is actually increasing. So, you know, obviously, eventually that's gonna matter <laughs> because those people are no longer living that way. You know, and there are more and more people doing that in, in Western countries. The other issue is people who are just going hardcore, let me buy bunkers in New Zealand, let me invest in outer space <laughs> and asteroids because I need to flee this ship, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I will always be rich enough to protect me and those I need to bring with me to meet my needs, <laughs> you know, and so that attitude is also extremely intensifying right now. Um, and so I think that then to deal with those two trends is um, to speak to that audience and say, well, if you're in the first group, um, then rather than dropping off the grid, then no, you, you have to work with us because um, you can't hide from this. There's nowhere to hide from this, <laughs> you know? Um, so you have to work with us to make change, to participate in the politics of your country in the global north, because dropping out is not helping. Um, and for them to feel 
like what you were asking, that it's not hopeless, that you are part of the system, you can make change happen there. It's happened in your society in the past. Things that were unthinkable have changed, <laughs> you know, like segregation, things that were supposed to be eternal slavery. It was, you know, unthinkable that it would ever end. Well, that it did, <laughs> you know. Um, so this can change as well. Um, for the second group, they will only change when they're made to change. And that's why the solidarity is important. Um, and, and that's why it has to be very tactical in terms of um, one of the things we did in this project is the people who write in it are not mostly not environmental lawyers. So that we have people from labor law or, um, what, or whatever, you know, economic law, investment law, trade law, write about this so that um, whatever it is you do, you realize that you're allowed to have a say, <laughs> you're, allowed, you're, you're part of the problem, whether you like it or not, you can easily be part of the solution. Um, and then change can be forced because I think um, oh, there's a third group, <laughs> the middle group. That's, that's why I did the page of the green consumerism. Yeah, that's a yeah, group. that's a big group, especially yeah. on university campuses, <laughs> where like you, you just want to buy your fair trade <laughs> coffee and you feel like I've done my bit, or pay for a carbon offset, then that flight is okay. Well, no. You know, as an academic, it's hard, but you have to just say, well, yeah, maybe people aren't going to hear about my work, but I'm not going to fly. We can, you know, be different. <laughs> we can change academia. We can change student life. We can change everything we, we do. But it's not about um, sort of like paying those, was Martin Luther in Germany, but you pay for your salvation. You know, <laughs> you just, if you're rich enough, you can buy your greenness. Well, no, we can't. So that's the, I think that's becoming a large sort of middle class group there. So um, yeah, they, they, they are kind of like the extreme rich. They will not change their lifestyles until they have no choice. So I think they're the only way is for everyone else to make enough, <laughs> you know? Hi, uh, thank you as well for the amazing presentation. I also feel like my mind is blown and I'm just absorbing everything. So um, I'll try to formulate a question out of this, but um, I'm doing some research for uh, someone else in this room about the animal rights um, and specifically in wartime and seeing how they can perhaps be a legal subject. And just obviously they're a part of the environment. So that's one angle that I'm taking, whether it's through the movement of ecocide or through um, movement environmental protection, which obviously this overlaps, but um, I found it really interesting how you are really focused on having to think outside of the box and having to dismantle the Western viewpoint of specifically the way you put it as um, us surrounding the environment versus the environment surrounding us. And I'm curious how perhaps maybe one of either whether it's a challenge or maybe it's a way forward to kind of look at the different um, areas of international law and how, for example, in wartime through humanitarian law, uh, we're focused on, you know, life or death decisions, necessity and proportionality, um, and either animals can, you know, be disregarded, the environment can be disregarded because they're focused on military decisions and protecting humanity, but it's also on the flip side of that, a time where we can really think of what's most important 
you know, maybe humanity is protecting the environment with all its repercussions of the decisions that we're making. So essentially I've gone off to into like three different tangents, but I'm curious if you have, you know, any further dialogue that you can share about the uh, not only the role of animals within the environment and how lots of, you know, maybe green commercialism through veganism that has a role and then also whether you find it a challenge that environmental law can be kind of compartmentalized into different areas of law. Yeah, well, I mean, on the second point, definitely the whole, the, the project aims to dismantle that, mm -hmm. the compartmentalization. We don't have a chapter on, on war, but I will say there's another collection coming up called Anthropocentrism in International Law, and there's a chapter on, on international humanitarian law in that about not just animals, but the non-human world in general. So also, uh, artifacts, <laughs> um, poisoning of all of that that happens um, during wartime. So definitely keep an eye on that because that might be useful for your research that should be coming out soon. Um, but who's, who's writing that chapter? Do you know? Yeah, Matilda Arvidsson. Um, she'll probably send it to you if you ask her because it's finalized. So you, can, you can get it now if you need it. Thanks, um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, I wonder if And the first part, well, um, yeah, I, I think that for me, again, it's it's something that I just. I've always felt intuitively was true, and now I know it to be true because I've spent you know more than a decade researching this. Is that that there is a link between the way we treat each other and the way we treat nature because we are part of the nature, and um, so it doesn't make sense to have a sort of an elite form of veganism that is so unaffordable <laughs> to any um, you know. So that there has to be a link between I me. Mean, I am a vegan, I, I do do that. It's just that I think that there has to be a link between well, why, why it is you do that and then how you behave in society to other humans, you know? And I think that um, that has to inform things like the laws of war and ancient laws of war actually do have that. So I know, for instance, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is like at the instant when the battle is about to start there's a lot of laws of war in there because it's krishna talking to arjuna saying i don't want to fight and you know arjuna and krishna is like you have to fight and this is why and so there's a lot of laws in there that are not that that see spirit in everything you know that are not just about well this person is my brother and yet i need to fight them in certain circumstances but also that that's there in, in, in also um, the battlefield and the wheels and in the chariot and in the umbrella that covers everything, you know. Um, and I think that, so I don't think that law would necessarily be useful today, but I think that there are ideas there that could inform something that we need today, perhaps, you know, in conjunction with the Geneva Conventions. So there, there are um, traditions that were holistic, even in Western laws of war before the Enlightenment. Um, so I think that, um, we think that this world is inevitable, but this world is really new. <laughs> it's, 
Um, it's just that it has made change in such an unprecedented fashion that we can't imagine. We can't remember you know, <laughs> traditions that were really not that long ago and that's still alive around us. So I think, um, yeah, we, there, there are answers all around us. We just keep shut them down. We don't listen. I read your article on, on humility, um, you know, losing your book of access to justice, you know, <laughs> listening and all you know, that. So yeah, I think international law has to be about listening to the international, which it never has been, but it can be. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. Unless anybody else has something to add, okay, let, let's wrap up. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Professor Ranjan, for coming all the way to Queens to speak with us. Um, uh, it was it connected all sorts of interesting ideas and made us all think. So thank you very much. Thank you.